0: Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo podcast where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smezo de Leon and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts or stream, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Paseo Podcast, everyone. Got a good show for you all today, as always. Our guest today is the first Democratic Socialist elected to Chicago City Council, 35th Ward Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, uh, but some of the things we're going to talk about with him today are his Puerto Rican roots, what drew him to public service, his identity as a gay man, the Latinx vote, the presidential election, Puerto Rico's governor endorsing Donald Trump for president, and a ton more. Before we get into the interview, I just want to give a shout out over to the team at the Ben Jarofsky Show at the Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader. For having me on as their guest this past week, we talked about a number of things on the show, including Puerto Rico and the U.S.'s relationship, Latinx voting, and the long-debated topic of Puerto Rico's status as a U.S. colony. We covered a lot more ground than that, including a little bit of wrestling predictions if you're into that type of thing. Talk a little bit about WrestleMania. If you have the time, and after you're done listening to this, definitely give my episode on The Ben Jurofsky Show a listen. If you liked what you heard or disliked what you heard... Let us know at Paseo Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. You can also use that handle to reach out to us if you want to pitch a story or just want to say hi. Either way, we love hearing from y'all. With that being said, let's jump into our interview with 35th Ward Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa. Bienvenidos a todos. Welcome to the Paseo Podcast. I am here with the 35th Ward Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa. I'm really excited for today's episode. Carlos, welcome to the show. What should our listeners know about you? Hey
1: Joshua, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your podcast today. Um, well, I was born and raised in the city of Chicago. Uh, my father migrated here from Puerto Rico, and my mother immigrated here as a child from Mexico. Uh, They met in the city. They had three uh, children, my two older siblings and myself, Uh, went to public schools uh, after graduating from high school here in Chicago, went to uh, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I got my bachelor's in political science, Uh, and then I returned back to Chicago uh, and started living in the Avondale neighborhood uh, while working in the Humboldt Park District Office of then Congressman Luis Gutierrez, Uh, And uh, after working several years there, uh, went and became uh, an employee at a union, Unite Here Local One, working on contract enforcement and helping our hospitality workers get the working conditions that they deserve. And then I went to go work for the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights, where I worked as a deportation defense organizer. Um, And it was there that uh, I started uh, looking towards the 2015 uh, Chicago Municipal Election and kind of wondering who was going to run against my then alderman. Uh, I was extremely upset about all the, the displacement that we were seeing in the Logan Square, Hermosa, uh, uh, and Avondale community, Albany Park, and the northwest side. And uh, I wanted to uh, make sure that we had representation that was prioritizing our neighborhoods and not the big and powerful special interests at City Hall. So I ran in 2015. Uh, I won and I've been reelected now uh, in 2019. Uh, and it's just been uh, such a pleasure and a joy and an honor to represent the people of the 35th Ward.
0: Remind me, were you the youngest alderman ever elected in the city of Chicago?
1: Uh, not the youngest. Okay. Uh, there were two other individuals uh, that were just a little bit younger than me um, when they were elected to the Chicago City Council. Uh, But when I was elected in 2015, uh, I was the youngest then, and I continue to be the youngest now five years later.
0: Wow. What's that like being in a city council where you're the youngest?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I I think it really humbles you um, Hmm. because you are surrounded by so many people who have done uh, amazing things, uh, who have amazing career trajectories, uh, who have a lot of experience under their belt. And so it's definitely been a... uh, challenge, uh, but also a great learning experience.
0: You started off the episode when you're introducing yourself. You talked about your family. Uh, your father arrived here from Puerto Rico. What part of PR is your family from again? Uh, so
1: he was born in San Sebastian, Puerto Rico, uh, in Barrio Robles.
0: Man, Carlos, we've had a lot of guests from San Sebastian lately. I, there's like something in the water here. I, you know, I growing up, I used to think that everybody in yeah, everybody that was Boricua here in Chicago was from San Lorenzo, where my family's from, where my abuelos mm-hmm. from. You're in public service right now. Did you, did you, did your father have any influence on your perspective on society, on your perspective on getting involved politically in your community?
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a. Great question. Um, my parents definitely had an impact on uh, the way that I view the world, my values, uh, how I put my values into action. You know, since you're asking specifically uh, about my father, and since this is a Puerto Rican podcast and we're talking <laughs> about uh, being Puerto Rican. We can, um, know, mom, would... we can talk about your mom,
0: See, We can talk about your mom.
1: You know, he was born into uh, poverty in San Sebastián. Um, it's interesting, actually, one of my friends, you know, the Newberry library here in the uh, city of Chicago has, uh, one of the most extensive, uh, colonial records, lots of documents, uh, manuscripts, uh, from, uh, the Spanish colonial period in the Americas. And so one of my friends, she claims, I haven't verified this myself, but one of my friends, she, her family's from San Sebastian as well. And she, uh, went to the Newberry library, looked at the colonial records and she claims that the Rosa family arrived to San Sebastian in uh, 1600 uh, on the dot. And they arrived as indentured servants wow. uh, to work the sugar cane fields. And uh, my father as a child in the early, uh, well, the mid 20th century, because he was born in 1950, he um, was uh, working the sugar cane fields. He claims that he was working them uh, at the age of 11. Uh, sometimes as, as you know, People, when they tell stories, they get younger and younger. So maybe at some point he was saying he was out there with a machete at the age of four. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I, and, and I think for me, that just kind of shows, you know, from 1600 to, you know, 1950, uh, for 350 years, the Rosa family, you know, worked the sugarcane fields uh, in San Sebastian. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, he was extremely hardworking. Um, You know, they they didn't have much uh, as a family. Uh, And actually, uh, during Operation Bootstrap, uh, of course, when the federal government was uh, flooding the island of Puerto Rico with resources, uh, which we know much of that was in response to, you know, people organizing, uh, leftists demanding, uh, you know, justice, uh, social and economic justice for the people of Puerto Rico and, and independence. He actually, with his family, flew out to Chicago I believe it would have been around 1957, if I remember how he told me the story. But his father did not like, uh, you know, the the situation here in Chicago. And so they moved back. My father then grew up in in Puerto Rico, went to high school in Puerto Rico. I remember him telling me that because he was the most studious and because he was uh, the smartest um, of his siblings, I hope my, uh, my tia and my tios aren't upset about that, but uh, that his father said, okay, you know, we're going to pay for you to finish high school, and we're going to support you going to uh, college. And so he was able to receive a college scholarship. I think it was the Inter-American University, Hmm. and um, he was not able to keep up the GPA necessary to continue studying there. Hmm. And that's when he heard about a program uh, at the University of Illinois at Chicago, uh, I believe it was called Teacher Corps, that was seeking to recruit bilingual educators or prospective uh, bilingual educators. And so uh, that's how you ended up in Chicago. and met my mom in that same program. Um, And so what that really taught me from a young age is that, you know, people uh, need a hand up, uh, that government uh, through the great society programs or through the scholarships uh, and the support that my father received, that the government has a role to play in eliminating poverty and making sure that our universities that our public system and that our programs are engines of opportunity. Um, And I think that that's something that my father carried with him for the rest of his life uh, because he worked his entire life as a uh, bilingual educator. Um, So when he graduated uh, from UIC uh, with his degree in education, my mother and he started alongside many other bilingual educators an organization called Chicago Bilingual Educators. And they organized and pushed the Chicago Public Schools to hire more bilingual educators, um, but also to hire more uh, Latinos and Spanish speakers and bilingual educators to positions of authority within uh, the Chicago Public Schools administration. So that also was a lesson that I think they learned and that they imparted onto my siblings and I, which was uh, that you, know, you have to organize and you have to fight. and You have to make sure that you, know, you are not just opening up doors for yourself, but for everyone in your community that looks like you, that sounds like you, that has a similar background to make sure that they have the same opportunities uh, that you've been able to have as well.
0: It sounds like with examples like that, with role models like that, it, it makes a lot of sense why you decided to run for city council. I know I always love reminiscing about my my family's history and roots on La Ila. My grandfather, my abuelo, very much the same. He becomes younger and younger with each story he tells. Uh, <laughs> so it's always funny to, to catch him in those moments. Let's talk a little bit about your, your experience in city council. Um, what's been the most challenging part about being an alderman in Chicago? What do you enjoy the most?
1: Well, I would say that um, one of the most challenging things is that, you know, much like in Washington, D.C., in City Hall, I would say that there's what we could call a neoliberal consensus. Both Democrats and Republicans have walked away from this notion that government is there to help people. Uh, they wanna do things like privatize. We saw daily privatize our uh, parking meters. Uh, and what happened is that J.P. Morgan Chase, who owns LEC parking, they got extremely rich and the working poor people in the city of Chicago got screwed over. Uh, under Rahm Emanuel, we saw partial privatization of our recycling program. We saw cutbacks and layoffs. We saw the closure of 50 schools. We saw the closure of half of our public mental health clinics, and what ended up happening there is to save a few million dollars. Uh, these critical, pivotal services in our communities were cut off, and people that otherwise were receiving the uh, mental health care that they needed uh, ended up in Cook County Jail. So unfortunately, you know, Mayor Lloyd Lightfoot, like Mayor Ron Emanuel, continues those same policies, policies that prioritize the rich and powerful at the expense of working people, Um, And so sometimes being a democratic socialist, being a strong progressive Democrat, I feel like I'm swimming against the current. You know, I'm surrounded by a lot of aldermen and by a lot of other politicians and uh, appointees at City Hall that are just thinking, you know, well, you know, government can't do that well, so let's privatize that. Or, you know, how do we look out for the interests of our big campaign contributors? But what I also really like is I like the fight. (laughs) Um, I like uh, being able to meet like minded people who share my values that want to see a government that's truly formed by the people uh, and working with them uh, to change the conversation and to fight for and push for the programs that we need. So it has just been amazing over the last several years to see the growth of movements like the No Cop Academy campaign. Um, I was one of 50 aldermen to vote against the police academy to stand with grassroots community organizers and say, you know. Best way to make our community safe is not by spending more on police and a you know shooting range and swimming pool for cops, it's by investing in after school programs, job programs, mental health services, education. That movement has now grown to a uh, you know defund cPD reimagine policing campaign uh, where we just had eighty seven percent of Chicagoans uh, eighteen thousand Chicagoans that filled out the mayor's 2021 budget survey say that they wanted to see less money spent on policing and more money spent on the community programs that keep us safe.
0: And I think anybody that follows you on Twitter, that sees you in interviews sees you at press conferences knows that you don't hold back. You very much speak your mind. When you speak, it sounds like you are staying true to your values, true to your identities, true to your beliefs. It's nice to see people that are really sticking to their morals, sticking to their values, and really trying to speak truth to power as best they can in our current system. I did want to talk a little bit about your identity, your party affiliation. You were the first democratic socialist, and you were the first openly gay Latino elected to the Chicago City Council. And this is a big deal for Chicagoans, especially the LGBTQIA plus community. So I'd love it if you could just walk us through what, what led you to embrace your identity when you decided to run was there a lot of personal reflection involved? Were you getting a lot of familial uh, friends' support? That's a pretty big step. Those are two big firsts, especially in a city like Chicago, which we like to think is very progressive. And I think in a lot of aspects it is, but I think there's certain things when it comes to party affiliation and identity where sometimes the, the voting blocks that exist in our ward aren't re- sometimes they're not kosher for some reason. So for you to embrace your identity and run as a democratic socialist, what went into those two decisions to to be out so publicly? Thank
1: you for asking that question. You know, I, I think that for Latinos in the U.S., we know what it is to have an identity because we are taught from a young age to have pride in uh, our heritage. Many of us go to Puerto Rican parades growing up uh, and hold that Puerto Rican flag and we wave it. We go to the Mexican parade and we wear that Mexican Uh, you know, uh, uh, we wear that, uh, we wave that Mexican flag. Um, And unfortunately, that same pride in our, uh, you know, sexual identity or sexual orientation is not something that uh, most parents are telling us to be proud of or to be cognizant of. Um, And unfortunately, you know, oftentimes, many of us uh, grow up with parents that are hostile or abusive towards their children and and their, uh, you know, sexual orientation. And so, it did take me a, a lot more time to embrace my uh, sexual orientation and who it is that I love, and and even after I had embraced that for myself, it took a lot more time to share that with the broader public than with others that I love. It's often remarked that coming out is a lifelong process because you know every time you meet somebody new, or every time you're in a new workplace or a new educational setting or institution, you know you're oftentimes to once again make that decision. You're oftentimes forced to once again make that decision of you know, in this moment, am I going to, uh, you know, divulge or share, you know, that my partner is a man or a person of the same sex? But I felt that, you know, when running for office, it was important that people um, know who I was and know my full identity. Um, and I think it's important to also normalize and to make it acceptable and to push the envelope to say, you know, uh, that we uh, as humans have so many different ways of expressing our love and our care for each other. And that, you know, if you're a gay man or woman, or if you're a queer person or a trans person, uh, that you should feel fully embraced in society and be able to live a dignified life. And so one of the first things that I did uh, on the campaign trail was send out a press release that, you know, that I'm openly gay Latino and, and that, you know, that's important that I'm running in the 35th board, because a lot of people told me, The 35th Ward on the northwest side of Chicago Overwhelmingly Latino, you're going to face a lot of homophobia. They're never going to elect the openly gay man or, you know, uh, there's a lot of Catholicism and, you know, they're going to reject your sexual orientation. So we felt that it was important, um, campaign volunteers and I, uh, that, you know, I I run as an openly gay Latino man, that I not seek to hide that or downplay that. And so actually one of the first sound bites or news coverage that I got in my campaign was just a short, you know, few seconds on Univision where they say, Un joven, gay se anuncia para, <laughs> you know, se declara para concejal de wow. um, and that that was pretty much it. <laughs> um, but but I think that you know, hopefully there was some, you know, young person uh, who was struggling with accepting themselves mm-hmm. and loving themselves, who maybe saw that soundbite and saw that news and said, you know, "Hey, I can, you know, be in a position of power. I can, you know, be." Elected by my community where uh, I can run for this position uh, and be openly gay.
0: Thank you for being an open book with that experience. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that story about the media and it's interesting what the media decides to grab onto and share and, and what the media decides to omit, especially when it comes to oppressed communities I'm shifting gears a little bit from, from your, your identity, identity as a, a gay man to now your, your party affiliation as a democratic socialist. Talk about an oppressed community and the political system. Um, <laughs> share a little bit about, for people that are unaware of what a democratic socialist is, what democratic socialism is, clear up some misconceptions for us. What is a democratic socialist?
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, the city of Chicago uh, has a long history Uh, with uh, socialism and leftist organizing. Uh, It was in this city that a uh, Afro-Latina, Lucy Gonzalez Parsons, led the first May Day march in the history of the world, where 20,000 people alongside Lucy and her husband and their children marched down uh, Michigan Avenue demanding an eight-hour workday, demanding uh, workplace democracy and, and dignity for workers. It was in this city that Martin Luther King himself, a self-described democratic socialist, faced some of the fiercest opposition from white supremacists to his calls for uh, racial and economic justice for Black Americans. But it was also in this city that we had um, Eugene Debs, uh, who was a uh, union organizer and a socialist politician who led a fierce battle to unionize uh, the railways and ensure that railway workers uh, have the dignity and respect that they deserve. And so I call myself a democratic socialist because there have been so many great Americans that have fought for social and economic justice, like Lucy Gonzalez Parsons, like Martin Luther King, like Eugene Debs, who identified themselves as democratic socialists. Uh, and I call myself a democratic socialist because I believe that we should have freedom and democracy in the workplace and in our economy and in our form of government. So I believe that people should have a right to self-determination, that workers should have a real say in their workplace and in their working conditions and be able to share in the wealth that they're creating. Chicago has had uh, socialist elected officials before. Actually, one of the first socialist elected officials was elected, I believe, in 1915, a Spanish-American man, so a true Hispanic, uh, elected uh, in... um, Uh, 1915 I believe in the Humboldt Park area Uh, and I don't remember his name off the top of my head right now but I think it was maybe his last name was Rodriguez. It was a hundred years later that we have another you know another uh, Hispano elected to city council that's a a socialist. We've had uh, a socialist movement in the U.S. for a very long time obviously in the mid-20th century with the Red Scare With, uh, you know, the the threat of, you know, the Soviet Union and other communist countries, we saw a concerted effort to criminalize and to uh, assault leftist movements. We saw COINTELPRO from the federal government targeting the Young Lords Party, targeting the Black Panther Party. Uh, Obviously, you know, the the Young Lords Party was a Marxist project, a, a leftist project. Uh, That really sought to achieve many of the same things that democratic socialists are seeking to achieve uh, as it relates to, you know, democracy in the workplace and in the economy and the self-determination of
0: people. In Chicago, we're making a little bit of history currently when it comes on the democratic socialist front, because it really started with you as the sole democratic socialist in the city council. And I believe in this last election, correct me if I'm wrong, Carlos, but didn't we elect five? Democratic Socialist City Council is the 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 Socialist Caucus at six Aldermen right now, Alder people. Yes,
1: yes. Yeah, so we elected five additional uh, Democratic Socialists. So we this went from growing. one to six. Yes, yeah. and so if I if I'm doing my math right, that means that. At the next election, 2023, we'll go from six to 36, because that's how that works, right? If yeah, it, right. One yeah, to six, and we have a multiplier of six, <laughs> uh, we'll be at a super majority in the council in no time. We, we're not a formal registered caucus, but we are gotcha. caucusing. We're all meeting together. Okay. Uh, we hope to file it soon.
0: As councilmen and women that have run under the Democratic Socialist banner in city council, can you break down what are some of your policy goals as, as a caucus? or as a group in the city council.
1: Yeah. So as um, a socialist caucus, what we've been looking to do is ensure that we are democratizing our institutions. So we voted against the 2020 budget proposal, because it was not doing enough to invest in reopening the mental health clinics. Uh, It was too reliant on regressive taxes that asked working poor and middle-class Chicagoans to pay more while uh, you know, excusing the rich from having to pay their fair share. So we wanna make sure that we have a government and an economy that prioritizes working people. Uh, as a socialist caucus, we voted against the mayor's emergency power grab ordinance uh, where she wanted to spend all of the federal CARES Act money without any real council oversight. Uh, and we demanded that there be provisions that ensured that there would be equity, that the money would go to the most vulnerable communities that have been hardest hit by COVID-19, which we know have been Black and Latino and working poor communities. Uh, As a socialist caucus, we put forward legislation to democratize Commonwealth Edison and make sure that our public uh, utility electricity company uh, works for working people and not ExxonMobil and a rich and powerful few. So we're constantly... Looking to make sure that we're shifting the balance of power between uh, the capitalist class, right? Those that don't have to work for a living and just collect all this money, and the working class, uh, you know, those of us who, if we stop working, uh, you know, in, in no short time, we will be out on the street uh, and, and starving. We know that the capitalist class, you know, those that, you know, own the companies and own all the wealth, uh, that they're going to constantly try and seek to, uh, you know, get richer. And that comes at the expense of working people. And so we're pushing for policies that shift that balance uh, and that make sure that we and our communities have the things that we need to survive and thrive.
0: We're going to take a pause for the cause, but don't go anywhere, because when we come back, we're going to hear more from Carlos on his thoughts regarding the Latinx vote the presidential election and Puerto Rico's governor, Wanda Vasquez's endorsement of Donald Trump for president. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, Give them a visit at their website at prcc chgo.org. Again, that's prcc chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo podcast, please email us at paseopod@gmail.com. That's PaseoPod at gmail.com. That's P A S E O P O D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park Center. In the last Illinois gubernatorial election, you were briefly slated to be Daniel Biss's running mate. Uh, If you remained on the ticket and Daniel won, that would have made you Illinois' first Latino lieutenant governor. To this day, we have yet to have a Latino governor or lieutenant governor or a Latina governor or lieutenant governor. So in your opinion, why do you think this is? Why, do you, why did you decide not to run for lieutenant governor? And, and what does representation mean at the, at the top of the ticket?
1: Uh, well, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's important that you know, communities, particularly marginalized communities, uh, have representation in government. You know, I believe in the identity politics that were put forward uh, by black women identity politics that says, you know, nothing about us without us, right? That our movements for liberation need to be led by those that are directly impacted by the issues that we're seeking to upend. Uh, so the Kambahi River Collective, uh, you know, working uh, in the 20th century, uh, coined the term identity politics. And so for me, you know, yes, representation matters. We want to make sure that we have women at the table and that we have Latinos at the table and that we have Afro Latinos at the table and that we have Black people at the table. Um, but we also want to make sure that our movements for liberation are at the table. You can have a Black CEO and that Black CEO can, you know, be doing things that exploit mm-hmm. workers across the globe. So we really want to make sure that our movements are represented. And so, you know, for me, I, I saw my run. Um, not just as an as a openly gay Latino, but a run as an extension of our movements. And that's what I've sought to model in my governance. Um, you know, anytime that I've taken a vote, anytime that I put forward legislation, I've always done it trying to work alongside uh, a movement that is fighting for change.
0: Being parts of movements fighting for change. Uh, I know you're rocking hard for, for Senator Bernie Sanders. I've I've heard a lot of chatter online on TV about the the concept of a protest vote and you recently tweeted your thoughts on protest voting so I was hoping you could expand upon why you think it's important to vote blue in order to defeat this current administration can you share your thoughts on on the whole idea of a protest vote
1: Yeah absolutely um you know I cast a protest vote in 2000 and 2012, um, when President Barack Obama was running for re-election and um, I was extremely upset about the record number of deportations, uh, a record number that not even Donald Trump with all his nasty, ugly, anti-immigrant rhetoric Mm -hmm. has been able to surpass. So knowing that we were in a extremely safe blue state uh, knowing that uh, you know, President uh, Obama was on track to win a second term, uh, I refused to campaign or volunteer for Obama as I had done in two thousand and eight because I was totally disgusted by President Obama's uh, immigration policies um, that were tearing apart families uh, and detaining children and uh, young adults and and mothers um, and fathers. And I uh, not only refused to donate or volunteer, but when I would get a uh, donations envelope in the mail, I'd write no deportations on it and drop it in the mailbox so that, you know, someone at the campaign office uh, would get that. And so as part of, you know, that uh, anger and that protest, uh, I voted Green Party in 2012 um, because I knew that, you know, Obama was definitely going to win Illinois. There was no question about that. It was his home state. And I, I felt that it was important to let Obama know that, you know, there were people that were upset with him. And maybe someone in the Democratic Party or, you know, in the White House would see that margin that went to the Green Party in Illinois and think, OK, you know, uh, we're doing something wrong here. Um, but this year is, is different. Um, and I think it's different because uh, we have a president in the White House who is hell bent on destroying the rule of law. Uh, on shredding up the Constitution and the protections that it gives uh, trans people, immigrants, people of color, Black people, who riles up his white supremacist base uh, in a way that we have not seen a president do uh, in a very long time. I think that I myself, you know, speaking as a, as a queer man, as a Latino man, I'm extremely afraid. I've already seen the harm that uh, Donald Trump has caused in his policies and in his rhetoric, hate crimes are on on the rise. They continue to be on the rise. The radicalization of the extreme right and the far right continues to occur. And so I think it's extremely important that we not only defeat Donald Trump but that we send a resounding message Mm -hmm. that we are done with Trumpism. Um, And so I think we can't leave anything up to chance. COVID-19 has impacted voter turnout we saw how voter turnout collapsed in the primaries as a result of this pandemic. And so while things look promising right now, you know we have a record number of early votes cast. Uh, we've had a record number of mail-in ballots requested. I don't think that we as a people as a society should leave anything up to chance. And so really for me, this is about defeating Donald Trump. I don't think that Biden is going to deliver the change that we need. But I think that we as working people, we as queer people, as Latinos, as immigrant communities, as brown communities, as black communities, we are going to have a much better chance of pushing forward our policies for change under a Biden-Harris administration than we are if the status quo continues. And I think that if Trump is reelected, things are going to get much, much worse.
0: Hmm. Uh, well said. I definitely want to talk about the Latinx voting bloc. Um, but really quickly, I remember reading this article in NBC News that was talking about why a growing number of Puerto Ricans are not registered to vote. And um, I mentioned this in our last episode that in recent recent migration of Puerto Ricans, we're looking at 200,000 Puerto Ricans that haven't been have not registered to vote. And you look at the reasons and disinformation not understanding that they can early vote or that we're currently in the the they currently have the ability to to vote for, for president a lack of understanding of the American political system a lot of voter suppression uh, so looking at Latino voters uh, as a voting block especially Boricuas, um, you know you a point well taken like we we do need to send a resounding message that this trumpism, uh, we're not having it, especially with how he's treated the Puerto Rican people. but I, I have been flabbergasted recently, Carlos, because i I remember seeing some recent polling that showed there was a high number of undecided voters within the Latinx population. I, I want to say, if I'm remembering correctly, the Latinx voting voting block uh, has the highest number of undecided voters. So knowing everything we know about Donald Trump from at least a Puerto Rican perspective, from uh, throwing paper towels at us, from not approving congressional funding that was approved by Congress years ago, to trying to negotiate uh, Puerto Rico being sold in exchange for Greenland, to demonizing the Latinx community as a whole. Everything we know about Donald Trump and his administration and the policies he's trying to push, whether you support him or oppose him, you know, why do you think... Latinos are so undecided about this election?
1: Well, you know, I think that historically, uh, from Reagan onward, um, Republicans at different points of time have been able to receive, uh, you know, as much as as a third of uh, the Latino vote in a presidential election. Um, We saw that decrease over time. I think a lot of folks in the Latino community are still extremely upset about the record number of deportations and family mm. separations that occurred under President Barack Obama. I know when I was knocking doors in rural communities uh, and knocking on Latinos doors in Iowa, in uh, Mexican immigrants doors in Iowa and asking them to come out and vote for Bernie Sanders, uh, there was still a lot of anger where people said, I'm not mm. supporting the Democratic Party anymore. You know, I saw the deportation policies under uh President Obama and uh, Vice President Biden. And Biden didn't really make an effort to uh, address that issue until the eve of the Nevada caucus, when he realized that in Nevada, which is a heavily Latino state, he was going to run into issues with Latino voters who overwhelmingly went for Bernie. But I think it's also because, you know, the Latino community is so diverse and, you know, the issues that speak to Uh, The Mexican community are different than the issues that speak to the Puerto Rican community are different than the issues that speak to the Cuban community, Venezuelan community, Dominican community, uh, and on and on. And so, you know, certainly there's, uh, you know, the the specter of communism that still haunts the Cuban-American vote in Florida uh, that, you know, is leading some to support Trump. So we'll see. I I think in the end, um, I think that, you know, Biden is going to win two thirds of the Latino vote, if not more. Uh, And I think Biden is going to win, you know, 85% of the black vote, if not more. Um, Democrats only win the White House when you have huge, big turnout. You know, if Biden loses to Trump, in part, it'll be because he didn't rack up big numbers amongst black voters and Latino voters. And I think that that should really push corporate Democrats to rethink their strategy. What are the substantive policies that they are putting forward that speak to these communities? Latinos care deeply about education. You know, we're a community that wants to be able to see our young people go to college and thrive. The college scholarship that my father was able to benefit from, a federally funded program that allowed him to graduate debt free does not exist anymore. Bernie Sanders was able to win so much of the Latino vote in part because he was putting forward a college for all program. So I think that, you know, the Biden campaign obviously at this juncture uh, has not put that forward. And if Biden loses, God forbid, I think that should be a lesson to corporate Democrats that you really have to speak to the bread and butter issues that motivate voters of color to turn out.
0: From a Puerto Rican perspective, under the Obama administration, that administration gave us the PROMESA Act in 2016. And we've seen how that has really led to a crippling of Puerto Rico's ability to be self-determining, self-sustaining. It's interesting to, to hear your accounts and when, when you were door knocking, the conversations that I do have, at least in the Puerto Rican community, it feels like, at least here in Chicago, we, we tend to lean a bit more progressive, or, and maybe that's just a reflection of the type of Boricuas that I hang out with in, in Chicago. But I found it interesting, focusing on Laila. I saw recently that the governor of Puerto Rico, Wanda Vasquez, endorsed Donald Trump for president. And earlier in this episode, when we were talking, I mentioned all the things that Donald Trump has done to really slap the face of the Puerto Rican community. Um, How does someone like the governor of Puerto Rico, knowing what we know about Donald Trump and how his administration has looked at at Puerto Rico, do you have any thoughts on on why someone that is the head of of the Puerto Rican government would endorse someone like Donald Trump?
1: You know, she is so irrelevant. I think the political landscape, uh, we know that, you know, she's affiliated with the Republican Party Mm. and within the Republican Party, Donald Trump has a 97% approval rating. I think that she's trying to remain relevant in uh, politics. I think that she's hoping to engender herself with the Republican leadership, but I don't think that her endorsement won Donald Trump any Puerto Rican votes, whether Mm. that be in the U.S. or on the island. I think that, you know, Wanda was rejected by her own party in the primary. You know, she lost to Pierre Luisi. And I think that says all that we need to know about, you know, whether or not there's anyone following her lead on this issue.
0: Really appreciate you being on the show today. Uh, how can people keep up with you? Give us the, the website, the, the social media channels. How can people keep yeah. up with you?
1: Uh, so if you're looking to reach out to me about city government stuff, look up Chicago's 35th Ward Alderman on Facebook. If you're looking to keep up on me and my political views and things like that, you can look up Carlos Ramirez Rosa on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at CD, that's Carlos uh, Diaz and Daniel Rosa, CD Rosa on Twitter. Uh, and then my website uh, is www.carlosrosa.org. All right.
0: Carlos Ramirez Rosa, 35th Ward Alderman here in the city of Chicago. Thank you so much for being on the Paseo podcast with us today.
1: For sure. Thank you for having me on.
0: Special thanks to 35th Ward Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa for coming on the show today. On next week's episode, we are interviewing Justin Agrelo, a Boricua journalist for City Bureau. We're going to talk about BIPOCs in journalism, being a housing reporter, and a whole lot more. So we hope you join us next week for another episode of the Paseo Podcast. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners... This would not be possible, so we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, media.org emailing us at podcast at gmail.com, and following us at Baseo Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate!